following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Well, there's probably no better setup for today's message than our um, praying the prayer that we've been taught to pray. We pray your kingdom come, your will be done. We pray forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And that's where we are headed today, into the world of forgiveness. Last week, if you were here with us, uh, we talked about a father and two sons. If you weren't here with us, you can catch it on the podcast. Or not, you can just pay attention to, you know, week two. (laughs) But last week we talked about a father and two sons, and each son was lost in his own way, and each was found by the deep abiding love of his father. And we talked about last week how we are, in our own ways, each of these sons at different times. And yet, we are to become like the Father. That was our message last week, and in a lot of ways, this is part two of last week's message. If you follow our social media this week, you saw a quote posted. We tried to post something to follow up on the message. Um, And we, we posted this quote by Henry Nouwen who was talking about the parable from last week. He said, the real question in the parable is, are you interested in being like the Father? Do I want to be not just the one being forgiven, but the one who forgives? Not just the one being welcomed home, but the one who welcomes home. Not just the one who receives compassion, but the one who offers it as well. Perhaps the most radical statement Jesus ever made was, be compassionate as your Father is compassionate. The most radical statement Jesus ever made is kind of a radical statement, honestly. Jesus said a lot of radical things. But I don't know, now it might be right. Potentially the most radical thing Jesus said was be compassionate as your Father in heaven is compassionate. That we can in some way extend the forgiveness of God to others. The forgiveness of God that is literally recreating the world. Forgiveness is a capacity that we can share with God, one that enters us into the divine life. That is a radical statement and the one that we are going to claim for ourselves today. In many ways, our parable today, which was read earlier, is part two of last week's sermon. How do we become like the Father? being compassionate in the way that God is compassionate. To do so, we must learn to walk the road of forgiveness. And I'm going to use that metaphor of the road throughout the sermon, and I'll talk about where it comes from a little bit later. But I do like that it reminds us that forgiveness isn't a moment. Forgiveness is actually a path that we have to live on. We ask forgiveness from God, We ask forgiveness from others, we extend forgiveness to others, and we forgive ourselves. That is what we're going to cover this morning, very briefly, unfortunately. And I'm very glad that our youngest artisans are in the room today. So if you are uh, one of those who's maybe not always in the room with us on a Sunday morning, we're very glad you're here, because forgiveness is something that we all do. It is a practice that we Put into our lives. It's part of being human beings that we both need forgiveness and we can extend forgiveness to others. 
And the earlier in our lives we start practicing this, the better off we are. Whether it is forgiving a betrayal, forgiving abuse, forgiving an insult, a broken promise, or an actual debt, as in our story today, we are all required at some point to walk this road of forgiveness. So if you are a kid in the room, just so you know, I mean, feel free to busy bag it up and all, but this message is actually for you. So pay at least, you know, a little bit of attention. Keep one ear open to what's happening this morning. Our parable today is actually not a difficult one. It is pretty straightforward as it was read. Um, And the parable, like many we have seen so far, is prefaced with a question. It was a real sort of setting that prompted this story. Peter comes to Jesus with a question about forgiveness. How many times must I forgive a brother or sister who sins against me? And then probably feeling generous, he suggests his own answer to the question seven times. Should I forgive this person seven times? Now, one mistake we and Peter are fond of making is that we put ourselves into that question as the one who will extend forgiveness. But what if Peter is the one who needs forgiveness? Do you think seven times would feel generous to Peter if he was the one on the receiving end? In Matthew 7, Jesus says, Judge not lest you be judged, for the measure by which you judge others will also be the measure used to judge you. Now, you might think seven times isn't very many if you have to use that same yardstick when you're in need of forgiveness. What if we mess up eight times? So Jesus gently tells Peter to check his math. And in various translations, you'll see Jesus' response as either, I, I tell you 77 times, or I tell you seven times, 70 times. It doesn't really matter which one of those is right. The grammar is um, unclear. And it honestly isn't about the math, which is the story Jesus tells us next. It isn't a checklist or a countdown. It's a way of living that we can enter into. So the parable is in Matthew 18, and you're welcome to follow along in the red Bibles in the pew in front of you, or Google Matthew 18 might be the easiest way to get there. Um, And starting with his regular formula, we hear Jesus say, the kingdom of heaven is like, so we're going to learn something about what it's like to live in God's good world. He says, it's like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. So one servant comes to him, and he owes this overwhelming debt. So the conversion rates in the Bible are sometimes hard for us to get our minds around. But basically, we could say this servant is a minimum wage worker. So if somebody's working minimum wage today, it would be like that person owing about $3 billion. That's billion with a B. (laughs) That's the equivalent if we're going to try to say how much debt was this guy in. Now, what's interesting is we don't actually know how he got into that debt. It doesn't say. But you can imagine you don't just wake up one day and you owe $3 billion. Uh, We might imagine this was a long-standing debt. Potentially, it was a family debt. And it is truly a crushing weight. Like, he begs for more time, but he was never going to pay that off. I I mean, all the time in the world isn't going to buy him 
the chance to pay back $3 billion. Now, this parable isn't about debt necessarily, but there is that undertone here, that there's this, this crushing weight of actual physical debt. And in the Old Testament law, people were to be released from their debts every seven years, it said. And after seven sets of sevens, so in the 50th year, anyone who had become a servant in order to pay off their debts or anyone who had had to sell their land to pay off their debts, they, they were to receive back either their freedom or their land that they had had to sell. Things were supposed to be resettled in a way every 50 years, but we were, they were to be forgiven of their debts every seven years. It was called the year of Jubilee. There is some evidence that this, though it is written into the law, was actually not practiced among God's people. <laughs> There's um, good evidence that they did not live this out, that they didn't practice this regular rhythm of granting mercy. And so if they had, we might not have a story about a servant who owes $3 billion, right? That wouldn't be something that they could fathom. In a way, the king in this story is reminding them that their community was supposed to always be characterized as a community of mercy. That's what happens in the story. The master of the servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave the debt. Now, if this community had been regularly granting mercy to debtors, this wouldn't be a big deal. We wouldn't have someone who owed this. God's people were to be marked by mercy. In this case, forgiving an actual debt and having done it regularly. Never letting debts pile up to the place that they crush us. And uh, that we can have a community in which we can live together in freedom and dignity. That was the point. And that's where we come to the second part of our story. This servant who just forgave, who was just forgiven this huge debt that was owed, is walking down the road and meets a fellow servant who owes him the equivalent of $6,000. Now, this person, too, is a minimum wage worker. And I'll, I'll tell you, I'm not a minimum wage worker, and $6,000 feels like a lot to me on a lot of days. It's not nothing. This is not pocket change. But for this servant who is making minimum wage, it's going to be tough. But it's possible to pay this step back. He might be able to do it if he's given the time, but he's given no time. The first servant has no mercy on the man. He throws him into prison until he can pay the debt, which we can have a whole conversation about whether or not that even is in his best interest. Probably not. When the king hears this from the servant, the other servants see this and are like, what in the world? How is it possible that he was granted this mercy and he can't grant it to other people. So they tell the king about it, and the king hears about it, and he is livid. He throws the servant who owed him this huge debt in prison, and it says tortures him until he can pay, which, as we said earlier, isn't going to happen. And that's our story. End of story. Now, before we get concerned about the image of God as tormentor or... Um, you know, the implication of eternal conscious torment. I'll just tell you that's not how this story goes. Um, it's not in the parable. 
The story isn't about God having an eternal jail and keeping you in jail for all the things that you have done wrong. It's not, the context actually doesn't lead you to read that into the parable. I've heard the parable preached that way, and I rarely say, you know, it's totally out of line, but I think it's totally out of line in this parable. <laughs> if you actually read the context of Matthew, you wouldn't come to that conclusion. There are plenty of parables about the future, and this isn't one of them. This is a parable about the present. This is a story in which Jesus is saying, unless you forgive people from your heart, this is your present reality. Whether you realize it or not, not forgiving keeps you in prison. That's what's happening. I like Anne Lamott who said, not forgiving is like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. That's not going to (laughs) happen. It is its own kind of torment that we live in when we choose not to forgive. There's actually really good scientific evidence. There have been studies done on forgiveness. There were um, some grants given out a few years back by a big foundation wanting to study forgiveness. And a lot of people looked at it through the lens of our mental and physical well-being. And there's good evidence that we actually store not forgiving in our bodies in particular ways. And that by forgiving, we actually walk the road toward healing and wholeness for ourselves. It is for our well-being that we learn to forgive truly and from the heart, is what Jesus said. So the question is, what can this freedom from the prison of non-forgiveness look like, and how can we move toward wholeness? Well, we do it by walking the path of forgiveness, taking, taking steps along this journey, And if you have ever had something to forgive, if you've ever had to walk this road, you know forgiveness can be a long path. And nobody can tell you how quickly you should be walking it. Sometimes it's not. And um, more practice in forgiving small things can help us when we run into large things that need forgiving. It's kind of like Jubilee. And it is something we actually do, and that's the challenge. C.S. Lewis said, forgiveness is a beautiful word until you have something to forgive. We like forgiveness. It feels nice to us until we are actually in the story. Forgiveness is more complex than anything we can talk about in 20 minutes this morning. I will say that. So we are going to talk about it practically, though not exhaustively. There are many, many, many more things to be said about forgiveness, but I do want us to walk out of here today having thought about what can we do? How can we start to put the practice of being forgiving people into our lives? So I hope that as you listen, you hear some practical things and you say, I'm going to do that and start myself down this road. So I've been helped by many books about forgiveness, and if you want to talk about books on forgiveness, I'm always happy to do that. But particularly a book recently, uh, the book actually came out maybe five years ago by Desmond Tutu and his daughter Mpo called The Book of Forgiving. And um, Desmond Tutu, if you may know, is an Anglican priest in South Africa who lived through apartheid and was instrumental in sort of the reconciliation that took place in South Africa after apartheid. 
And his daughter is now a researcher and teacher in the area of forgiveness studies. There are actually several PhD programs, well-respected PhD programs, um, especially in South Africa and other African nations, in forgiveness studies. And as is true for them, um, many people who begin to think deeply about forgiveness do it because they have lived great pain and violence. It's not because they've lived lives of... Um, sort of peace and reconciliation. They've had to work for peace and reconciliation, and so they know something about it. What I think the history of the world tells us is that violence begets violence if we let it go. I think we are seeing that on a pretty daily basis right now in our own backyard, and we really need to be paying attention to it. Retaliation seems to be the natural evolution of the world, and forgiveness is its alternative. It is an alternative path, and it is the way of the kingdom. It breaks the cycle of violence. So if we're going to be committed to ending violence in our community and in our world, and that could be anything from gun violence to gossip and slander that we live with regularly and that inflict their own kind of harm in the world, we are going to have to engage deeply with forgiveness. Deeper than our sermon today will go, but it, this will be a start. I'll say, though, there really isn't another way out of the cycle of violence, as I think a lot of people who study forgiveness will say. So where are we possibly going to begin? Well, I think we begin in our own lives. It begins as we acknowledge what is happening, what has happened, what we have done, what we have participated in, what others have done to us. It starts in real, concrete things. Forgiveness is not generic. Forgiveness is specific. This is true if we're asking for or offering forgiveness. If we did something wrong, we have to own it. Forgiveness is not something that um, can go without being named. The, the sin cannot go unnamed. It will be difficult to own our own stories if we aren't able to say what's happening in the story. Stories are powerful. And being able to own what's happened to us what has been done is the beginning point on the road to forgiveness. We have to say things out loud and be specific about them. If we can't acknowledge it, it can't, we can't forgive it. Now, for some of us, that isn't hard. We've been hurt, and that story takes over our lives. It's all, it's all we think about. I'm, I am honestly one of those people. I ruminate. It's what I do. And what I've come to realize is it's hard for me to let go of the future that I had hoped for that feels now not possible for whatever reason. And the stories I can get stuck in are the ones that in some way derail my hoped-for future. And I actually have to grieve that as a true loss. I really did lose something there. And I have to have compassion for myself that I have lost something. And that's when I can begin to actually imagine a new future, to see a new future emerge. And this is where I'm going to say what I say regularly, and I really do believe, if this is something that's difficult for you, this is a great place for you to get some professional help. 
There are people who can help you walk through some things in your own story. There are counselors and mental health professionals who would love to talk with you. And I'm always happy to help you connect to those people if that is needed. So this is true in big things that happen, and some of us may have some big things. Um, But it's also true in small things. We have to be able to name small things. Sometimes I think we let small things go because uh, we don't want to make a big deal of it. We've been told we're too sensitive. And sometimes we've gotten to the place in our lives where we can let small things go, where we actually have become people who are deeply gracious people. And we forgive sort of almost immediately. But if we aren't there, then we shouldn't pretend to be there. We need to be able to say to one another, that word you said, it hurt me. That thing you did, it hurt me. Now, if you have been wronged, not everyone needs to hear every story. And Jesus actually set up a pattern at the beginning of chapter 18 that talks about how we can engage with other people so that we don't perpetuate harm and violence, right? It says, actually, you go first to the person that hurt you. That's the first step. And a lot of things can be taken care of in step one, by going to the person, by being, by being heard, by sharing what happened and by being heard. But that's not always the right answer. It's not always the safest answer. So there are also ways in Matthew 18 that we are told that the community can actually participate with us in seeking forgiveness and reconciliation with another person. Whether it's... Um, when you said this thing, it was upsetting to me, or when you laughed, I was hurt because I actually was being serious, or um, when you didn't sit with me at lunch, my feelings were hurt. All of those things are real and happen in our lives, and as soon as we can admit them and say them out loud, we actually can start down the path of reconciliation. So telling the story to the other person, person is usually the first best step, Though sometimes it's best to have somebody else alongside you, and that's sort of the next thing that Jesus says, is feel free to have a person alongside you in doing this journey. You don't have to do this alone. This is not a secret thing. Um, And then if that isn't even the right thing, there's a way for the whole community to get involved in trying to heal the hurt that's among us. But you sort of walk these steps, every step as you need it. And if someone comes to you, and says, I need to tell you how you've hurt me, or I need to tell you how another person has hurt me, that isn't when we debate the story, that isn't when we interrogate the story, we don't challenge the story, that is when we realize that we are being entrusted with someone else's hurt in that moment, and we sit with them in that. It is a trust. You maybe didn't know that... that, whatever was happening was happening, but they are trusting you with that now. They're asking you to understand and to develop empathy. It might not be something that you feel like would have hurt you, but being in a community, we honor the feelings of one another. And we say, I'm sorry. If you are not sorry though, don't say you're sorry. Say you understand and you're trying to understand. Um, I know as a kid, sometimes I was told to say I was sorry, and I really wasn't sorry, but I said I was sorry, right? Because that was like the magic formula that you say this thing. 
And I don't know that that helped me as a child <laughs> develop any kind of empathy for other people. Um, I would say it's important that we learn to be sorry, that we actually learn to listen in a way that we can take in the feelings of other people and honor them in ways that we can actually um, pursue a community where we can all feel safe and healed together. It's important that we acknowledge not just what happened, but how we have been hurt. And now hurt is a feely word, and for some of us, that's not a thing that we naturally connect with or we naturally access. And it's hard for us to name sometimes our feelings out loud. But I'll, I'll say this. We talked a little bit about it last week. If we aren't able to name some of our feelings out loud, if we have anger that lives in us and we we put a mask on it, and we don't call it anger because, you know, Christians aren't angry people. So if we just kind of cover that over, we just let it fester in our lives. And then we, we still feel it, but we try to numb that feeling. And so we walk down the really wrong road at that point. Sometimes the best thing we can do is say, I'm angry because I'm angry, because I was hurt by this. And we have to actually be able to own when we feel ashamed, when we feel fearful, when we feel angry. Because as we name them, they lose their power. Those kind of emotions love to live in darkness. They grow best in the dark. When they're brought into the light and we can actually name them in a community of people, they lose power in our lives. When we don't and we mask our feelings and they live in the darkness, they can eat us from the inside. So this practice of specifics, being specific about our feelings, being specific about the things that have happened in our lives, this beginning point on the road to forgiveness is also true of forgiveness with God. So we um, confess our sins sometimes, and we do that, I think, sometimes we can be a little generic when we do that, that we are sinners. Well, okay, but we actually did some, some specific things. And I think the, the more specific we can be, even in what is our relationship with God, the more God can meet us in actually the place where we really are, and the more we can find God's forgiveness there. So one way you can do this, if you're looking for a practice to pick up, one way you can do this is through the prayers of examine, which is a way that you can end your day with God, um, and you sort of you sit with God at the end of the day and sort of rehearse what's happened. You go through your day again and the things you did and the things that happened to you and how you felt about them. And you let all of those sit with you and God. And you let God speak into those moments of your day. And then you think about what will it be like as I go through my day tomorrow? And how can God be coming with me in these very specific moments of my day? The truth is what allows us to grant and receive forgiveness as we name true things that have happened, that we have done, and that we have left undone. Sometimes we want the other person um, that's involved to change somehow. We think that that is the secret to forgiveness. And I will tell you that is not something that we get to control. It is our being able to speak the truth even if the other person can't join us in that, 
that leads us down the road of forgiveness. We name what happened, we acknowledge our feelings, and then we grant forgiveness whether or not the other person is there with us to receive it. That might be one of the most challenging parts. When the other person actually isn't there (laughs) or doesn't agree with us that this thing was a problem, how do we grant forgiveness in those moments? Well, we're going to see if we can figure some things out or at least start down that path. So what does it mean to grant forgiveness? Well, I'll tell you first some things that it does not mean. It does not mean approving what someone else did. It does not mean pretending that it didn't happen. It doesn't mean making excuses for another person's behavior or justifying someone's actions. It never means overlooking abuse. It does not mean letting other people walk all over you. It does not mean refusing to press charges if a crime has been committed. It doesn't mean not seeking policy changes. It doesn't mean forgetting. That actually might be very difficult. And it doesn't mean that the relationship will be restored necessarily. It doesn't mean that you'll go back to being best friends, that things will go back as they were. They might not. It does not mean that you must tell the other person that you've forgiven them. Sometimes that's actually not even possible. I like Brian Zahn's definition of forgiveness. He says, forgiveness is ending the cycle of revenge. It's ending the cycle of revenge. It is not pretending or forgetting or excusing. It is making the choice that the cycle of violence ends with me that my hope for this person is not retaliation. I will not perpetuate anger. I will not gossip. I will not slander them. I will not let this story make me a violent and abusive person. I will live and love freely in the world and imagine a new future that both of us could live in together. One of the most powerful statements of forgiveness I think I've heard in a while was Rachel Den Hollander's victim impact statement at the trial of Larry Nasser, who was convicted of abusing hundreds of women and girls while posing as their doctor. Speaking to him in court, she offered him forgiveness. She told her story and expressed hurt that he had caused. And yet she also extended to this man who had done so much harm to so many a different story that they could actually both live in together in freedom. Speaking directly to Larry, she said, should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found, and it will be there for you. Rachel Den Hollander could imagine Larry Nasser among the company of those who have been reconciled to God. She could imagine that. She offered that to him and believed it was possible. It was a new story that they could both live within, a reconciled story. We can't ever choose that for another person. They might never choose to live in that story. But until we can imagine that it's possible, 
forgiveness will be impossible. As long as you believe this person is outside the reach of God's grace that can make them a new person, just like it made you a new person, you will struggle with forgiveness. Doesn't mean that they will choose it, and they might continue to live destructive ways that make restoring the relationship impossible. But we hope for new things for them. We hope for new life for them. That's how we know that we have come to forgiveness. We actually can hope for a new future. Forgiveness chooses to tell a new story, not the story of a victim, but the story of hope and power and a future. Forgiveness recognizes that I am not what has happened to me, and no person is defined by the worst thing they have ever done. We allow God, as the prophet Isaiah says, to make beauty from the ashes. Forgiveness, in a way, moves us toward beauty. We talked about our, our values converge in many ways. And this is one way our community and, and beauty values can converge. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross says, the most beautiful people we have known are those who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of the depths. These persons have an appreciation, a sensitivity, and an understanding of life that fills them with compassion, gentleness, and a deep loving concern. Beautiful people do not just happen. In a way, she's saying beautiful people have walked the road of forgiveness. So we go back to Peter's question at the beginning. In a way, Peter is asking, how many times do I have to walk this road? And in a way, Jesus' answer was, you are always on the road. This is your road. In different times, we are at different points of this, but forgiveness really is a way we come to live more than it is a momentary thing that we do. Henry Nouwen says about forgiveness, forgiveness is the name of love practiced among people who love poorly. I like that. It changes my imagination of what forgiveness is and how I participate in it. It is the way we love people, even if it means telling the truth about a thing. It is a way of of telling the truth in a way that loves people toward reconciliation. Now and goes on, the hard truth is that all people love poorly. We need to forgive and be forgiven every day, every hour, increasingly. That is the great work of love among the fellowship of the weak that is the human family. How do we put an end to violence, hostility, retribution? We learn to tell our stories. We learn to hear the stories of others, to name the hurt that is being done, to grant forgiveness, and to seek a new future together in Christ. To welcome others into the kingdom of God, which is a kingdom of mercy. We choose the hard road that leads to freedom for ourselves, for our families, and hopefully one day for those who have hurt us. 
Well, as we come to the end of our sermon today, I think it is only appropriate that we end our message with what we do every week. We normally do a confession earlier in the service, and I moved it to the end for today. Um, we usually, we either, we confess our things in two ways. We either confess shared faith, um, and, and in that we actually say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. We say that every week. It's a part of our shared faith. But today I think it is appropriate that we end by confessing our sins, which we do sometimes, as we will today, from the Book of Common Prayer. I think it is helpful to be reminded that we have done wrong and that we have not done right. Both of those things are a part of our confession. That we confess to God, we receive God's forgiveness so that we can actually also forgive others. The first step on our journey just might be this step where we admit to God what we have done. So the words are up on the screen, and we will pray together this prayer. Most merciful God, In many traditions, what's follow, what follows the confession of sin is a word of assurance. So here are these words of assurance from Psalm 130. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Put your hope then in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. Amen. As we have been forgiven, we remember the forgiveness that God gives us at this table every week. So uh, Jesus, on the night that he was handed over to suffering and death, the night that he was going to be betrayed by his friends, he actually gathered them together in a room. And he said, take this bread. It's my body that's broken for you. As often as you eat this, do it and remember me. And after supper, he took the cup and he gave it to them and he said, take and drink all of you. This cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. So we too are invited to remember the forgiveness of God here at the table this is a table, this is Christ's table, and you are invited. Christ invites you if you are here this morning. If you are a new visitor at Artisan, or if you haven't been with us long, just so you know how we do it here, we come up the center aisles, take a piece of bread, and dip it in, in the cup. We have wine and juice, and we have gluten-free options for those who need it. We also have single-serve options if you need that as well. So I invite you to come and to celebrate forgiveness at this table. It's a table where we remember that our community is a community not of violence, but of forgiveness. 
We also have uh, somebody in the back. If you are in need of prayer this morning, we have a prayer station in the back, and Del would be happy and um, welcome you this morning if you need prayer for anything. So as you are ready, come and celebrate and remember the forgiveness of God here at this table. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.